been studying politics for 30 years. Welcome to Arnie Geddon. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And we're here this time to take on the very special A&E presentation from the year 2005, C. Arnold Run. Definitely a top three of all time biopic here, Cam. Really? Top three, huh? In what regard? Uh, well, it's just so, so good, so watchable, so rewatchable. Sure. A lot of big names in it. Sure. Uh, excellent. That's uh, very well regarded in, in film circles everywhere. They're like, Lincoln? Eh. Walk the line? Eh. See Arnold Run. That's where it's at. Well, I said it was top three. I didn't say it was number one. That's true. That's true. Was it the Gary Coleman appearance that puts it at number three? Uh, no, it was probably the Warren Buffett appearance. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> That's kind of a weird non sequitur, because normally in, on this podcast, we I kind of rely on people having seen the... Uh, well, I'm just getting the, to the, that. The movie, so, you know, when we're doing a Running Man episode, and I just say, oh, I hope Buzzsaw is coming over for dinner, I just assume people know what I'm talking about. Sure. Here, I feel like our listeners might just think, what on earth is this guy talking about? What is C. Arnold Run, and what does it have to do with Warren Buffett, and what does any of that have to do with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Well, I was, yeah, going to lead into that. <laughs> when you and I began this podcast, we knew which movies we were covering. We were going to be covering everything from Terminator 2 to, you know, Stay Hungry. We'd heard of these movies. Even, you know, the villain, we knew of it. Hercules Goes Bananas. We knew the obscurities we were going to delve into. I even knew about the Jane Mansfield story. I never dreamed that one day, though, I'd be watching a Arnold Schwarzenegger biopic starring Jürgen Prochnow. I had no knowledge this was a thing that existed. Yeah, me neither. This was a total mystery to me. I can't believe I didn't know about it. Uh, but here we are, Cam. <laughs> and it was based on a book by Nigel Andrews. Had you ever heard of this book? Uh, no, I can't say I had. Yeah, I'd only really heard, I guess, of the Arnold Schwarzenegger autobiography. I guess I really hadn't gone off the deep end into the world of unauthorized Arnold biographies. Well, I don't know. Is it unauthorized? Well, I guess it's not written by Arnold. I was not familiar <laughs> with the world of biographies of Schwarzenegger. Yeah, no, me neither. I mean, for all we know, there could be dozens of these things out there. Are we going to do episodes on them like a book club? We'll see how this episode does. <laughs> okay, so this movie aired on January 30th, 2005, prime time. You know, that was, what, 14 years ago at the time of when we recorded this. And it's easy to forget where we were as a society at this point in time. Is it that easy? It's a little easy. Uh, that has more to do with lifestyle than anything else, Cam, I think. <laughs> Time is the fire in which I'm burning, Tony, and it's going quickly. <laughs> it's stalking me like a predator. But <laughs> So let's just take a little bit of a flashback and say, you know, what was popular on TV in the year of 2005? Here was the top 10 shows for the 2004 to 2005 season. You had at number one, CSI. The classic, William Peterson, brilliant. 
right? Am I right? Can I get some love for CSI? Uh, t- was it the original CSI? Oh, yeah. Gil Grissom and the Heezy. <laughs> I'm afraid I don't know what you're talking about exactly, <laughs> but carry on. Okay, number two, you had American Idol, the Tuesday version. At number three, American Idol, the Wednesday version. I think it was like nominations and eliminations, I guess, between those two days. I really don't know. You know, you know this. I think what you're really shining a highlight on is just how out of touch sure. I am with the period that Arnold Schwarzenegger was not making movies, basically, <laughs> because I didn't even know American Idol was on more than one day a week. At number four, you had Desperate Housewives. At number five, CSI Miami, David Caruso. Am I right? I guess you're right this time. I'm, I don't have the facts to disagree with you. At number six, you had Without a Trace, another crime procedural. Number seven, Survivor, one of my all-time favorites. That's not even ironic. I mean that seriously. I love Survivor. Number eight, Grey's Anatomy. Number nine, Everybody Loves Raymond. And number ten, Monday Night Football. So there is a little bit of a snapshot as to what the world, or at least North America, was watching at the time C. Arnold Run ran. Yeah, and it's really not all that different than the way things are today, is it? No, not really. People like crime procedurals, uh, reality television, and uh, football. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. And Ray Romano, they love him. Yeah. Great guy. God bless him. Um, a couple other events that happened the month that this uh, aired. Craig Ferguson replaced Craig Kilborn on The Late Late Show on January 3rd this same month. As well... This month also marked the 35th anniversary of All My Children. So there you have it. That's some pretty aggravating tidbits you got there, Cam. (laughs) As well, some of the other glorious TV movies of 2005. The competition, if you will, for C. Arnold Run. You had Dynasty, The Making of a Guilty Pleasure, another biopic. You had Stone Cold, starring Tom Selleck. Nothing to do with the Brian Bosworth film. Or the Steve Austin film. That too. Uh, you also had Their Eyes Were Watching God, which is based on, I think, a 1937 novel starring Halle Berry. I'm just going to throw out there, I feel like I'm the color commentator to the worst play-by-play commentary of all time right now. <laughs> you also had the TV remake of The Poseidon Adventure, as well as The Muppets Wizard of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> what do you have to say about that, Tony? Uh... I don't have a lot to say about that, Kermit. Let's just say I'm not going to go back and revisit 2005 in television in a big way. Oh dear. Okay, so moving on. Tony, what is this movie about? This is a movie, Cameron, about a young bodybuilding immigrant with father issues. Right. Who goes on in a very Pulp Fiction-like disjointed timeline to, spoiler alert, both win the Mr. Olympia competition and... Win the governorship of California. And also along the way, uh, spoiler alert, ambiguously win the love of his father. Or something like that. I think it's more that he realizes he doesn't need the acceptance or the approval of his father. Yeah, but maybe we should stop right there. And before we spoil the entire movie. Sure. More than it is already spoiled. Can you spoil real life? (laughs) That's the question. Yeah, based on a true story. Yeah. What we should do is normally we rely on our listeners to have seen the movies that we are talking about, if not recently, at least repeatedly. But in this case, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think that nobody will have seen this movie. (laughs) I think nobody will have heard of this movie. But blessed be to the gods above, this movie is available 
for free on YouTube right now until A&E gets a hold of those copyrights <laughs> and starts sending some angry lawyers letters. So what I think we'll do is maybe we can leave a link to the the movie in our show notes. Sure, I put a link to it in our previous uh, post on our blog at arniegen.com. That's right. For the episode on uh, Last Action Hero. But uh, I will also include one in the link for this show. So if you're downloading this and you're a little bit confused at the moment, as we pretty much are all the time, head over there. You can see a link. You can spend 88 minutes reliving the adventure we just completed. Yeah. Um, but what I will also say, unlike most of our episodes where I say, even if you've seen this movie you know, five years ago, it's important. Go back and watch it because we want you to be along for the ride with us. Uh, in this case... Eh, you can take it or leave it. I'm going to maybe also spoil what we normally do, which is at the end we kind of give our final thoughts. I'm going to give my final thoughts up front. This movie is not very good, and you can skip it, and you can just listen to us talk about it. Uh, in fact, you can even turn this podcast off and download one of our other episodes. Uh, hey, hey, don't be giving them bad ideas. <laughs> about a better movie. Sure. Um, okay, so... I owe um, <laughs> the Jane Mansfield story a big apology, and I think we'll get into why <laughs> pretty soon. But I'm just curious. You know, obviously we can't talk about the first time we saw this with any sort of reflective sort of opinion. Well, I can. Well, I mean, in, in terms of like... I, I saw it about an hour ago, Cam. <laughs> we can't compare our first viewing to a second or third viewing, right, is what yeah, I mean, like course. we normally do. But I am curious. When you sat down to watch this movie, what were your expectations? I mean, I was expecting something kind of crappy, but I was also expecting something uh, a little bit off the off the wall based on what little I'd seen. Because we had watched a trailer before, mm -hmm. which made it look like, you know, just the greasiest TV trash that you could imagine. And then we also watched a short clip of the actor portraying James Cameron in the movie. Uh, acting as kind of an amateur psychologist to, to Schwarzenegger when he's deciding whether or not to become uh, a Hollywood movie star. And that scene is totally bananas. Oh, yeah. And I thought that's what this movie was going to be like. It was a bunch of journeyman actors and bit players playing Hollywood superstars in a made-for-TV movie. You know, and it would be like watching Glengarry Glen Ross in a community theater. We just need the leads, man. I just need the leads. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I, I went into it, I guess, expecting, like, a, a really corny biopic. I guess like the Jane Mansfield story. Right. In that a lot of these life events would be isolated into really superficial, cheesy TV moments without any sort of subtlety. And, like, there's... Definitely some of that here. What I didn't expect was this weird ticking clock behind the scenes take on the Arnold Schwarzenegger election that plays out like Aaron Sorkin if he ran headfirst into a brick wall. In a community theater. In a community theater. Yeah, like this thing wants to be this hard-hitting, fly-on-the-wall, almost like Paul Greengrassy documentary-like account of the behind-the-scenes of Arnold's run for governorship, you've got all these people walking around him or running around him, mouths going a mile a minute, spouting out jargon. You know, it's supposed to be very, like, process-driven. The sense of, like, you are literally in the heat of things. You are feeling the pressure and all the tensions of this campaign. You are here with them. And, oh, this movie just... 
it was punishing to sit through. Like, really punishing. Yeah, what I'll say, too, is I actually didn't realize that, that that's what this movie was going to be about. Uh, I'd watched the preview. I'd watched that little James Cameron bit that we talked about uh, earlier. And we're going to talk a whole lot more about later. Yeah, because there's not that much else to say about this film. But I actually thought it was going to be uh, by the numbers, start to finish, or at least uh, start to somewhere in the middle biopic of Arnold Schwarzenegger's life. I didn't realize that there was going to be this uh, Frost-Nixon drama thrown in the middle. I think drama is a very strong word. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so I guess let's just get into it. You've just sat and spent 88 hard-earned minutes of your life watching C. Arnold run. What are your thoughts? I mean, I think you've kind of made it clear, but maybe you want to sum it up a little more or kind of lay out your your argument against this thing. Well, put it this way. It gave me a real appreciation for what a talented actor Arnold Schwarzenegger can be. Sure. And he's not in this movie. Right. This movie, we'll put it this way, um, there were parts of it I found a little bit interesting, uh, but not that many parts. <laughs> right. But yeah, actually, the stuff with... Uh, Roland, I think it's Kickinger or Kickinger. Uh, I apologize to Roland if if I'm mispronouncing his name. He's actually the guy who played Schwarzenegger's body double in Terminator Salvation. Right. If you remember, they uh, map Schwarzenegger's face onto his body, actually. Right. Uh, so he plays a young Arnold Schwarzenegger. I actually found that part of the movie kind of interesting. The actual genuine biopic stuff. But the, the stuff... In the, I guess at the time, the present day or the recent past, where Schwarzenegger basically decides, I think it's 58 days before the uh, California governor's election, that he's going to run. And it takes us right up to the election where he wins and he, you know, reflects on that whole process. Sure. Uh, that part, which was most of the movie, I think it took up probably 75% of the screen time. Probably, yeah. Was, uh, was a tough slog. Uh, yeah, it really was. And Arnold, in that point, in that part of the film, is played by Jürgen Prochnow, who was in Das Boot. He's in tons of he, stuff. He's a, he's a fairly recognizable, well-known, and well-respected actor. Yeah, he is. He's a really good actor, and I've seen him in a ton of movies. And uh, I have no idea what was going on. It really made me question, is it possible to play Arnold Schwarzenegger? Is Arnold too much of a unique unicorn to try to impersonate or play. I think Roland Kickinger is pretty good. I think he he nails it about as good as you can, but his stuff's very superficial, I think. I mean, when you've got Jurgen Prochnow trying to summon up this Schwarzenegger persona, it doesn't work at all. There's not a single second in this entire godforsaken 88 minutes that I believed he was Arnold Schwarzenegger. I, I think you're you're actually more negative on this film than I am. <laughs> oh, give me a break. You could sit through this thing again? Um, I don't know if I'd like to sit through this again. This was painful. It wasn't great, but I don't know if I'd describe it as God-forsaken. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if Roland Kickinger maybe had the easier role, but, I mean, he wasn't perfect by any means, but... I kind of believed him as a young Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, same. I mean, Roland Kickinger, he certainly has the physique to play Schwarzenegger. And it's kind of a, a little bit ironic here in that he 
did have, and he does have, I think, a little bit of an acting career, generally playing uh, disposable bodybuilder or goon on television programs and low-grade, low-rent movies. Right. But he's primarily, I think, like a bodybuilder type guy. That's his career more than actor. Whereas Jürgen Prochnow is a well-established journeyman actor. And I think Roland kicks Jürgen out of the water here. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the words can really describe how bad Jürgen Prochnow is at approximating Schwarzenegger. The accent is... It's atrocious. Bizarre. The accent is atrocious, and it's, like I say, it's a little bit like the community theater thing. I swear to you, I think it changes from scene to scene at times. I think it definitely does. I don't think it's consistent, like, at all. And you are comparing it a lot to uh, to Mayor Quimby from The Simpsons. It, it sounds more like John F. Kennedy than it does Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's like, PayPal off Springfield. <laughs> yeah, no, it's quite quite weird and i don't get it i like i don't know who was listening to this or who was watching this or um whether jürgen prochnow was looking in the mirror and practicing his lines but at some point somebody should have said something well it's like the uh the crew wig maker slapped this brown wig on him and said the hair's right we leave the rest to you and we got this it's bizarre it's quite strange and then he also doesn't have anywhere close to the physique of an Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, Arnold has a stature that when he walks into a room, he really does stand out. Whereas, like, Jürgen Prochnow, I mean, he looks fine, but he's he's not an Arnold Schwarzenegger-type dude. Yeah, and probably most importantly, because, uh, you know, I really like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Sure. Uh, I can put up with a bad accent. Right, yeah. If you can put up with that accent, then you can put up with anything. Yeah, and I, I really like, uh, say... Uh, Van Damme, he's a guy with pretty small stature. Sure. I can put up with a guy with a smaller stature as well. But I think probably the most important thing here is that the the acting itself is really quite bad. Oh, it's I brutal. I don't know, is it the line? I feel like the people who are around Jürgen Prock now, uh, like his as his little entourage, pol- sure. politico helpers, Yeah. Um, they're not bad. They're also made up of a kind of slew of journeymen they don't they're not very interesting there is not a single interesting one in the bunch uh, i couldn't tell you their names sure i only can because right now i'm looking at a list of them you know guys like uh you know the real life characters maybe mike murphy don sipple paul minor people like that um but i mean yeah none of them have any personality they all exist to be like a greek chorus being like arnold's in some trouble Oh, Arnold's going to win the election. Uh Uh-oh, Arnold's in some trouble. Okay, we really are going to get this guy to the finish line. Yeah, they do the job and kind of a journeyman, we work on television regularly type crowd. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was, I thought, Mariel Hemingway, uh, who I hadn't seen for ages. No kidding. Uh, And she's got a, I don't know if she's got any wins, but she definitely has some Golden Globe nominations and Academy Award nominations under her belt. Sure, yeah. I mean, she was nominated, I think, for Manhattan, the Woody yeah. Allen film. She's also in, like, I think, Bob Fosse's Star 80, which is kind of notable. As well as, you know, you referenced it before uh, we started recording, uh, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, oh, the, probably the best Superman of all time. Oh, of course. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, she's in there. She does a pretty good job as uh, Schwarzenegger's wife, Maria Shriver. Yeah. Um. And uh, incidentally, because I was reading up on her a little bit before this episode, also the uh, uh, granddaughter of Ernest Hemingway, the writer. That's right. That's but, right. Uh, Nora Dunn is also in there as uh, 
Schwarzenegger's political opponent, uh, Arianna Huffington. She's not bad. She doesn't have a lot to do on screen. But for the most part, everything focuses around Jurgen Prochnow and his lines are pretty bad and his delivery is pretty bad. And I, I don't like to be this negative because we're not critics by any means and we're not there. I don't like to rip apart somebody's work when uh, I think, well, he's probably doing a better job than I could as a as an actor. But I've seen Jurgen Prochnow in a lot of stuff and this has got to be his worst. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. It's a bad performance, but you can't just blame him. It's bad casting. There you go. Casting agent. Why was he cast in this role? He's not appropriate for it. He doesn't fit it at all. He's entirely unconvincing as Arnold. Okay, uh, now let's look at the lines he has to deliver. Oh, gee, what do you know? They're terrible. And this screenplay <laughs> was written by Matt Dorff. Um, who no was... relation to Stephen Dorff, I don't think. <laughs> and, I mean, he has written basically a laundry list of TV movie biopics and TV movies. He wrote Growing Up Brady, Inside the Osmonds, Mr. Rock and Roll, The Alan Freed Story, uh, The Party Never Stops, Diary of a Binge Drinker. <laughs> I mean, this guy's written an endless slew of these types of movies. This was basically, I'm sure he wrote like five this year. This was just one of them. And then again, you go, well, okay. So the dialogue's terrible, bad casting, but the director should have his eye on the ball here, right? And so, you know, you look into the director who was James B. Rogers. Now, this guy actually has a freakish amount of prestige. This is not a small time guy who directed this thing. He is, uh, in his regular life, um, a producer and assistant director, frequently. He's worked with the Farrelly brothers since day one. This guy was an assistant director on Dumb and Dumber, Three Stooges, There's Something About Mary, Green Book, which won the Oscar for Best Picture this past year. Uh, he's basically done all their movies. He's also worked as an assistant director on The First American Pie as well as Beverly Hills Ninja with Chris Farley, uh, the movie Three Ninjas, Poison Ivy with Drew Barrymore, all these, like, cult hits. Um, he was also the director on the Farley Brothers-produced Say It Isn't So with Chris Klein and Heather Grimm, as well, his biggest hit. He directed American Pie 2, which grossed a lot of money. And mm. you'd think that would have given him some free reign. He followed up American Pie 2 with Knee High P.I., about a diminutive private investigator. <laughs> And that pretty much killed his directing career. He was you done. You don't say. <laughs> then he followed that up with this. <laughs> and from there, it was all downhill. He did a couple of movies I, don't, I haven't even heard of called The Pool Boys and Demoted. Um, you know, <laughs> Demoted is a very appropriate title for this guy's directing career. But uh, he also had a weird credit I just want to say because I thought it was funny. He wrote Sorority House Massacre 2. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. That's one of my favorites. I would have thought so. Yeah, that one's a classic, Cam. Directed by uh, Jim Wynorski. Uh, who's done a slew of B-movies, uh, Forbidden World or Forbidden Planet, I can't remember which one, uh, Chopping Mall, a bunch of really spectacular B-grade science fiction and horror. I think he started with uh, Roger Corman at some point in the 70s or 80s. In fact, I wish that this podcast was all about Sorority House Massacre 2 sure. instead of uh, Biopic Massacre 1. Right. <laughs> Yeah, so, but yeah, as I was saying, like, uh, you know, this director, Rogers, is seeing all this in front of him. He's seeing this performance. He's seeing this dialogue come out of this actor's mouth. Why is he not saying, hmm, this doesn't work? 
Maybe this project is... But you know what? Maybe I'm being too critical of something that... This is an A&E TV movie. I seriously doubt a lot of time and thought was being put into it. No, I think uh, the general impression I get about these types of movies is here's the money, here's the crew, get it done. Uh, it's got to air in four months. Do you think he sat there on the set making this movie going, I'm a long ways away from American Pie 2? I have no idea. Maybe he was thinking... Uh, but I'm that much closer to tomorrow's paycheck. <laughs> That's true. Although if you're a producer for all the Fairly Brothers movies and a first AD, you've got to be doing it reasonably well. I, I have no idea. I don't want to speculate. Unlike a lot of our episodes, I actually didn't look too far into the production sure. of this movie. Because one, I didn't think I was going to find anything. And two, uh, I just couldn't be bothered, <laughs> to be honest. Okay, well, let's just talk a bit about this movie. Let's just break it into chunks. Let's just... Start with the interesting stuff first, which is all the flashback, the the Roland Kickinger material, which is all, of course, portrayed in sepia tone because it's in the, you know, in the past. And it's weirdly integrated throughout the film. Some of it feels purposeful, you know, like winning the election, being cross-cut with him winning Mr. Olympia. That makes sense. But that's not always the case. There's a lot of odd material that just is, you know, placed willy-nilly throughout this whole movie. Did you notice that? Yeah, they, you know, they'll cut to Schwarzenegger being excited about running for governor, and then they'll just smash cut to a scene of Schwarzenegger and Franco Colombo uh, at the beach swimming with some girls in bikinis. Sure. Set to beach music. Uh, yeah. Actually, the music in this movie, I think they spent more on the music budget than they did on the rest of the production. It's like a time-life uh, hits of the 70s and 80s uh, CD or something like that. It's just like, uh, it you know, it opens with Steely Dan, goes into Twisted Sister, and we just take off from there. I like that whatever money they had, though, for that music budget, they could not pay Dee Snyder enough to show up and actually play himself. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, it was a nice wig. Sure. <laughs> that yeah, that actor had a heck of a wig. Oh, interestingly enough, the score to the film was actually done by Lee Holdridge, who, believe it or not, actually has at least one or two Emmys under his belt. I think a Grammy as well. Yeah, Holdridge actually won an Emmy for uh, the pilot, for composing the music for the pilot of the Beauty and the Beast TV show starring Linda Hamilton, who worked with Arnold Schwarzenegger, bringing it back. Dance uh, moves. Uh, well, since we're, since we're desperately grasping at Schwarzenegger straws here, Cam. Uh, you mentioned Heather Graham earlier. We would be remiss to not mention that she got her start in an uncredited role in Twins as Arnold Schwarzenegger's mother. Very true. It's all connected like a rich tapestry. But let's get back to the Roland Kickinger scenes because, you know, we saw a lot of the highlights of his career. Was there any that jumped out as, like, favorites or moments that you thought summoned up the spirit of Arnold in a way that was at least fun to watch? Well, Roland Kickinger was kind of playing... For the most part, like the pumping iron era Arnold. They did a lot of throwbacks of that, which I guess translated into the future political scenes as scandals for the most part. Yeah. Um, but him interacting with women, him interacting with Arnold Schwarzenegger's longtime girlfriend at the time, Barbara Outland. And a lot of scenes of him at the gym and in bodybuilding competitions with, you know, Franco Colombo and Lou Ferrigno and these, these guys that Arnold Schwarzenegger hung out with in the gym and on the bodybuilding scene right i i thought it was interesting in as much as like he seemed to actually understand roland i'm talking about kickinger seemed to understand how to capture the spirit of schwarzenegger he's 
not exactly a one-for-one -one replica in terms of the voice or anything. And the look is close enough to kind of fool you. Um, but Well, certainly the physique is. The physique, definitely, yeah. But I, I thought it was interesting in that, you know, you referenced his scenes with, like, women that caused problems later on. I thought this movie was really interesting to watch as a document from 2005. And that in this movie, in 2005, we are rooting for the hero to overcome these allegations. Versus now, <laughs> where we'd be like, you dirtbag. Yeah. Like, the world has changed a little bit since 2005 in the way we would portray yeah. this sort of scandal. Hashtag not making this movie now. Yeah, exactly. But, um, you know, there was some scenes with him. Like, I, I like the scene where he shot a bunch of footage for, uh, basically test footage for the Pumping Iron documentary. And they're showing it to an audience. And the audience is just rolling their eyes and laughing at it. And Schwarzenegger has this moment of vulnerability and walks into the theater and then kind of realizes, no, no, we're gonna, still going to succeed. He really has that Arnold Schwarzenegger can-do-at-any-cost attitude. He does. They, they do a pretty good job in this movie of showing young Arnold's intensity. And I think Roland Kickinger is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. um, he definitely gets that kind of crazed look in his eyes sometimes, spouting mantras and uh, doing raps at the gym far beyond what a normal man could handle. There's a bizarre line he repeats to himself where he says, I'm Zeus, king of the earth. Is that something Schwarzenegger actually used to say? Who knows? It would be a weird thing for anyone to say. <laughs> yeah. um, it also shows him, we should say, he's not just bodybuilding. He's also going to school, studying business, yeah. learning mathematics, learning English. Uh, and in the same way, though, uh, those scenes serve as a mechanism, basically, of showing Schwarzenegger's drive to succeed. I would have liked to have seen more with his movie career. He references Hercules Goes Bananas, but we don't get even like one scene of him on the set or something. I thought that would have been fun to have. I have a sneaking suspicion as to why that is. Okay, go for it. Uh, I think the reason is that when this was filmed in, in 2005 or 2004, I guess when it was filmed probably, Amy I think at the time was owned 50-50 by Walt Disney and by the Hearst Company. Okay. And I suspect that either in virtue of that, or more likely in virtue of budget, they would have had a hard time not just getting the rights to show these productions or show these properties on screen. I think just clearing, mentioning these on screen uh, was probably more than their legal budget could afford. You don't think he, they could just show him in like a toga and be like, here he is on set without re really referencing the movie? Or the other actors? I don't know. Time to call an expensive entertainment lawyer, Cam. No kidding, no kidding. Um, but I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of that. But I think, you know, the scene that really is the highlight... I mean, look, we can say the highlight is maybe the woman pouring chocolate syrup on him and licking it off, which is <laughs> one of the most bizarre scenes in the movie. Uh, I know I've already used the words non-sequitur in this episode, but yeah, what a non-sequitur. That was bizarre. But anyways, you know, the, I think the real highlight is, um, and, and by highlight I mean bizarro highlight, is the meeting with James Cameron where Arnold goes to talk to him about being in Terminator. Which they never mention. Which they never mention by name. Um, but James Cameron has this talk with him where he's like digging into the essence of Schwarzenegger. He's really like breaking this guy down and building him back up. And it is the most bizarre, feverish depiction of James Cameron I ever could have hoped for. 
Yeah, he's definitely more of a Sigmund Freud than a James Cameron. <laughs> yes, totally. Totally. He practically has the cigar in his head. Yeah, you know, he gets right into it. He's like, I think the reality is, is that you're a scared little boy. A loser. Doesn't he say that? Running from your daddy or something, something like that. But it's really... Um, I think that is definitely the highlight of this film. Unloving father, he says. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, you want to be an all-star or be like a, a movie star? Be yourself. And it's just like this bizarre moment where, first off, there is no framing of the scene. There is no sense of Arnold going to an audition or Arnold knowing James Cameron. It's literally just him sitting opposite this actor playing James Cameron, having James Cameron break him down. I wish I had a little more context as to where in the relationship this scene takes place. If this is a first time meeting, it's bizarre. Incidentally or tangentially, just because, I, <laughs> again, I think we're going to be clutching at Arnold Schwarzenegger and Arnold Schwarzenegger references in this episode. Sure. I, I will mention that the Jim Wynorski film Forbidden World yeah. actually shared a set with Galaxy of Terror uh, on which James Cameron got, got his start. Wow. That was a long reach there. <laughs> also, a, also a Roger Corman protege. But getting back to James Cameron, <laughs> yeah. you know, what did you think of this scene? I thought it was awesome. <laughs> it really was great, wasn't it? Like, it's terrible, but it's everything I wanted out of this TV movie. Yeah, it was community theater James Cameron. Yes, and like frenzied, mad James Cameron. I would watch a movie, a James Cameron biopic, pitched at this same tone. Yeah, although it is kind of weird, though, because it's like you say, they just... Throw in James Cameron here, and again, I think it probably has to do with the property rights. They never mention once in this movie the words Terminator. Um, yeah, well, uh, he, he does say Terminator 4 when he's on, he's having a debate in a scene with uh, with um, Ariana Huffington. And oh, says, that's right, He Sorry. says, like, you could be the villain, or I have a role for you in Terminator 4. But then after that, someone says, he shouldn't have made that T3 reference. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Are they confused about what movie he was talking about? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Um, but they don't mention him being in Conan the Barbarian at any point before No, that's this. a good point, yeah. Uh, so maybe they were able to get the rights or whatever rights they needed for Hercules in New York, which I imagine can't be expensive. I think you and I could afford them. Probably. Uh, maybe we should pitch him. We'll start a Patreon account here. <laughs> but they don't mention Conan the Barbarian. They don't mention Terminator. They don't mention anything to do with his movie career, really. No. No. Which is a really weird thing to gloss over in an Arnold Schwarzenegger biopic. They also don't focus on any of the interesting relationships. Like, we see appearances from people in his life, like Lou Ferrigno or Frank Columbu. And, um, you know, it's like they're just one-note characters. They pop up for a cameo and they do nothing. Like, that's the problem with, you know, and this is something that um, the Jane Mansfield story did as well. It's just like, here's a pop-up character, give them no context, nothing of interest... And it's like, okay, like, who gives a shit? So, like, the thing is, like, I mean, the only relationship we have to even hold on to at all is the one with his girlfriend, Barbara, and she's played by Nicole DeHuff. Like, what did you think of this relationship? I think it was serviceable, but I don't know what it was in service of. What is her life like? Because this movie gave me no sense. She works in a diner, and that's it. I think so. Uh, I mean, I don't think they went too far into her life. They just... I think they were showing her to show that Schwarzenegger maybe had a inner life or a home life that was different from his public I guess, appearance. but it was so underdeveloped, there's nothing there. Yeah, it was underdeveloped. And this woman he was with for, I think, what, six years? Something like that? Or quite a while. 
So, like, that seems very thin. Like, why should I care about this flashback material if you're not giving me movie references or any sort of delving into his life? It's all the stuff we kind of know. Yeah, well, maybe that's a, a great place to segue into another certain biopic that we should talk about, which okay. is the Jane Mansfield story. Sure, go for it. The Jane Mansfield story, of course, being the uh, an early Arnold Schwarzenegger starring vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um based, unsurprisingly, on the life of Jane Mansfield. Right. Schwarzenegger's character was really just there to move Jane Mansfield along. I think it's Mickey Hardigan. Hargitay, isn't it? Hargitay, that's right. Thank you. Um, And similarly, we had similar issues in the podcast that we did on that one, where there really wasn't a ton of character development. People were just kind of moving through the film, uh, being acted by competent actors but not being not having a particularly lot to do yeah and not being done pretty well uh and again that was a made for tv biopic granted run on maybe 25 years prior production values Mm -hmm. but uh, i mean does it go to show that biopics don't really change that they're always kind of yeah things you don't want to watch on cable television (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's a what, like a 25-year age difference between uh, Jane Mansfield and this. And I feel like no progress has been made in terms of storytelling and character writing. I mean, like, I guess the difference is if you really, like, you know, hold me to account and say, which do you prefer, the Jane Mansfield or C. Arnold run? I'm going to say Jane Mansfield because I think that one, it's terrible, but it follows one linear story and I can go, okay, well, that was a superficial look at Jane Mansfield. Maybe I get a couple scenes that I recognize from her life that are given a few minutes. Whereas, like, C. Arnold Run, it's split in these two halves. And all the interesting stuff, to at least me personally, is all the flashback stuff, which is acted out by Roland Kickinger, who I think is actually doing an okay Arnold. And feels like he could actually kind of summon up that sort of charisma of that actor I love. Whereas, like, all the stuff in the, you know, the later years during the election stuff is so dull to me that I just lose all interest. So I guess Jane Mansfield, I'm engaged most of the time in where the story is going, even if it's not interesting to me. Whereas this one, you're losing me for 75% of the film because I found the election stuff in this movie just brutal to sit through. And I think the problem with it is, okay, so like, look, I think it's very difficult to convey like the pressures of a political campaign in a way your average viewer is going to find gripping. They may find it interesting intellectually, but to actually be wrapped up in the drama of it is difficult. I think of like movies like The Ides of March is really good, the George Clooney movie. Uh, Primary Colors is pretty good with John Travolta. You know, there are good political films. You know, Aaron Sorkin, I think, specializes in this sort of thing. But... um Forgot to mention Bullworth. I'm not a big Bullworth fan, but uh, <laughs> why not? <laughs> but um, this movie doesn't have any of those abilities. Actually, I've heard a story. Jay Roach's recount is really good. I haven't seen it, but I figured I'd shout it out. Probably a better, you know, TV production than this. But I mean, like this one is like it has a couple problems. One, it has this ticking clock scenario where we are counting down the days to the election and to the Mister Universe competition at the same time. Very true. And you should feel tension with a ticking clock scenario. That's why you have the ticking clock scenario. Did you have any sense of urgency with these rapidly diminishing days leading to the election, Tony? 
Uh, not until the allegations of sexual misconduct came out at about day six to the election. But did you even find those to be presented in a way where you thought, where you like felt an impact? I just went like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Here's the typical late second act stumbling block that he can overcome for the finale. Like, it didn't feel to me like there was any actual drama in it. It was just like dropping a historical fact and being like, oh yeah, this happened. Yeah, no, I didn't find that there was much impact of the ticking clock in either the in either of these two stories, in either the Mr. Universe story or the political story. Because, in fact, in the Mr. Universe story, there was no point where you think he'd be looking in the mirror and being like, uh, you know, my bicep is torn. I need to I need to work extra hard in order to get it back in shape or something like that. Right. You know, not that that would be a very good plot <laughs> device at all. Uh, but... Tony wants to write the yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. Arnold biopic himself. Yeah, exactly. Just muscles being torn. Like, <laughs> I'm, I should watch a little bit more Grey's Anatomy uh, <laughs> in order to get some information on, on the actual biology of the human body, I think, first. Right. Uh, but no, yeah, no, it had no no impact at all. But um, I don't recall like the Jane Mansfield story really having any any heft at all either in that regard. But it didn't try to. It wasn't giving you this ticking clock and expecting you to care. It was just like here's a leisurely two hour biopic. Whereas like this one, it has that. So I I don't care about that. But second of all, you have a lot of very complicated information being conveyed, tossed back and forth between all these political partners of Arnold's. And, like, I could not have been less invested in anything they were saying. It was not well-written, sharp dialogue. It was just actors spouting exposition at each other. And not even, like, <laughs> flowery exposition. Just basic jargon. And it was really dry to sit through. Well, I mean, here's a question for you, Cam. And it's a question that I've, I often have when we're talking about political dramas here. Sure. Uh especially American political dramas. Yeah. Because uh, we've mentioned it before on this podcast. We record up here in Vancouver, uh, BC, Canada. And for me, I'm, I mean, I have a general idea of what's going on in the States, in American politics. Sure, the broad stroke stuff, yeah. But it's not something that I, I follow on, on the regular. Right. Especially, and, and this was a little bit different. I mean, everybody knew that the, the California election, uh, I mean, it was a big deal because you had uh, Arianne Huffington and Arnold Schwarzenegger, who were fairly well-known personalities outside of the political world, right. running for office. So, you know, I knew a little bit more about that at the time, but I wonder, like, if you were to show this movie to someone who was born and raised in California or someone who was invested in California state politics and water policy, uh, yeah, maybe not so much water policy. But is this something that would make more sense to them? That would be more interesting to them? Would people just know right away who people like Don Sipple and Mike Murphy and Paul Miner are? Because the movie introduces them like we should just know who these are. Like these are political. Uh, or journalistic or campaign institutions sure. in America generally or California specifically. Yeah, and I, I and I'm not gonna lie, I don't, I did not know who those people were. They yeah, had, they had to explain them to like me. Like they had cameos of like Warren Buffett and Barbara Walters, you know, actors playing them, and like those ones we know. But yeah, you're right. Like these characters who play a larger role in the film, 
I had no idea who they were. The movie did a terrible job introducing them or giving them any sort of personality. And so I just go, okay, it's a bunch of talking heads spouting at each other. And just, as I said before, playing the Greek chorus. And I think that would work maybe more if the movie had a better understanding of older Arnold as a character. Like, I never felt for a second I had, or the movie had, any real grasp on Arnold Schwarzenegger, like any insight into him. It's like they would have him just do his lines, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm a wild man, all that sort of stuff. But it's not like they really seem to understand him. You know, when I look at a good biopic, they have some sort of angle on the figure they're portraying that makes it feel like you learn something about them. You don't necessarily have to know biographical information that no one knows but, you know, the real person. You just have to have an angle on them that maybe presents what they mean to the world or why they're special, what makes them unique. This movie didn't seem to have any of that. If you could sum up in a few words or a couple sentences, how would you describe the character of Arnold Schwarzenegger as portrayed in this film? Which version? Uh, say the older version. The older the, version. The Jurgen Prochnow okay. version. Um, very, like, flippant. Like, he likes to toss off quips all the time. Uh, doesn't take anything seriously. So, yeah, it's a kind of flippant. Um, I guess arrogant. Um, they keep telling us he's charismatic. I didn't feel any charisma coming from the performance. But I'm going to assume Arnold Schwarzenegger is charismatic in real life if you meet him. But Well, uh, well the actors who, around the Arnold Schwarzenegger character in this movie yeah. um, all seem to be very enchanted by him. Sure. And I would say he's... They, they were kind of like the, the charisma laugh track. <laughs> and I would say unpolished, because he's definitely unpolished. And that's one of the big factors of the movie. I don't know. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that struck me about him, both in uh, the 1973 Arnold Schwarzenegger and the 2000s uh, pre-politics Arnold Schwarzenegger, I guess mid-politics Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, was just almost obnoxiously optimistic. Yeah. But he seemed very thin, like it was not a three-dimensional person. No, it was, it was like that uncle you, you only see at Christmas. Right. You know, comes in, cracks a few jokes, uh, you know, it, it doesn't take your over-serious cousin seriously, uh, causes a few rifts, but everyone loves him because it's Uncle Arnold. Sure. And, you know, see you next year, kids. Right. That kind of thing. Yeah. I just felt like... Like, I, I've seen, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. I've watched enough interviews with the guy to know that he's very likable when he's in an interview, whether he's talking to people. He has the ability to be incredibly charismatic and, like, fun to watch, but also give the impression that he's listening to people. Whereas, like, I never got that sense from this Jürgen Prochnow version. He seemed to exist in a world of his own and didn't seem to really connect with other human beings. Except for Maria Schreiber... And even those scenes are like the cheesiest, you know, piano tinkling soundtrack type stuff. Hey, we already talked that that uh, soundtrack's <laughs> got some pedigree behind it. Sure. But yeah, so I, I don't know. Like, I just never felt I understood Arnold Schwarzenegger. And in a movie that's all about Arnold as a biopic and as an institution for, you know, America and North America, uh, I, I just, I felt like very it was very lacking in telling me why Arnold matters. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It it was not the hard-hitting, punching drama that it could have been. <laughs> uh, and what did you think of the flashback scenes to him as a child in black and white, as if he was a character in Francois Truffaut's 400 Blows? Yeah, I actually forgot until you mentioned that they were actually dealing with three timelines here. This yeah. is a, a veritable Quentin Tarantino movie here. Sure. The kid uh, stuff's very minor, but... Yeah, I thought it was boring. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, really corny. Uh, 
I th- what was going through my head, I may have even, even have blurted out while you're watching the movie, which I know always annoys you. Yeah. Um, wardrobe, we need a giant mustache over here on set one. Because yeah. his uh, his father was wearing just the, the fakest looking mustache I've ever seen. But it was interesting how the color of the film got just a little bit brighter the farther ahead you went in the future. It's true. It's true. We went from black and white to sepia to color, which is the most hackneyed choice. Like, that is, like, biopic 101 stuff. (laughs) Uh, I'd actually like... I wouldn't mind watching... uh, the other biopics by this director. And, well. I mean the writer, actually, the Matt, Matt Dorff. Because I, I got to imagine that most of them follow the same sepia-toned formula. Well, there's only one way to find out. Spin-off podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, ultimately, I just want to know, like, when you got to the end of this movie, and it reached its conclusion of Arnold laying in bed, satisfied with his victory, looking up how to, uh, you know, how he's going to... Um, amend the U.S. Constitution insinuating that they might want to be president. Sure. And then Maria Shriver's like, Oh, Arnold, what was your feeling as the movie faded to black? Well, I think I said it out loud, actually, which was, what a piece of crap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was. I felt relief. But I also just... It just felt so, like, silly. And, like, you know, you were saying earlier, I wonder if this would mean more to people who lived, say, in California. Well... I can't speak for the state of California, but I did look up a lot of reviews for this that were all, you know, coming from like Variety and Hollywood Reporter, all within, you know, California. And they were not good. They were not kind at all. They were saying like A&E hits a new low with this biopic. <laughs> so like, I don't think they were on board either. And like, to me, when it was over, I just realized like, I got nothing out of this. Other than the James Cameron bizarro stuff. And the chocolate syrup scene that was uh, some sort of horror show to sit through. Maria Shriver uh, calling a never-seen-on-screen Oprah girlfriend. That was actually pretty funny, too. But, like, outside of these small, small little moments, which account for, like, one minute of 88 minutes, this movie just left me with nothing. It was just, like, dead space. And, uh, you know, that's not really what you want when you're watching a biopic of someone you are actually actively interested in learning about. Yeah, it felt like cable TV filler. Yeah, which pretty much, I think, sums it up. So, I mean, I guess if there's another A&E biopic of Arnold Schwarzenegger coming, you know, maybe some different period of time, we'll be having to really think about whether we want to tackle that one. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's kind of weird, actually, now that you mention it, Cameron, because obviously you and I are big Arnold Schwarzenegger fans, although I think, I admit, I'm more of a fan of his uh, acting in his movies than I am, uh, I'm not that knowledgeable of his political career or really of his bodybuilding career, except in broad strokes. Not the same way that, say, someone who's really into bodybuilding or someone who's really into political science or something like that might know more about either one of those subjects. Sure. Uh, so maybe I was missing something by having that whole middle part of that movie not there. Yeah. But I also think that kind of by default... You and I are more interested in this movie than your average person. Sure. I don't know if that's the case in 2005 when all this was going on, but even then, I got to think, I mean, I don't know what episode this is going to be, and likewise with our listeners. So hopefully you guys out there have have watched this movie as well, not for your own sakes, but uh, for the purposes of this exemplary conversation. You'd think it's the kind of movie that by default would hold our attention. And it did not. No, it didn't. 
So, yeah, is this the worst Arnold-related movie we've reviewed on this podcast? I think it is. I don't think there's any competition. I probably would have said Jane Mansfield, but this was worse. I'm not sure. I think some, I mean, some of the bad ones are really bad. Cactus Jack slash the villain. Sure. It's pretty bad. Jane Mansfield, it's pretty bad. I think I would still put this one at the bottom. To me, I, I don't think there's any competition. Killing Gunther? No. Well, one day, I think maybe we'll do a uh, a worst Arnold Projects episode. Yeah. Uh, maybe once we've wrapped up all of our actual movie reviews. Sure, sure. And uh, and we'll see where this one pans out. Although, I guess it's not technically a Schwarzenegger vehicle. That's why I said Arnold related, because I know we're going to do at some point down the road a ranking the Schwarzenegger movies. Uh, this one will probably never pop up again, other than snide comments in its direction. <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Asterix, see Arnold run. <laughs> okay, so I think that wraps us up for see Arnold run. Oh boy, it was, a, it was a journey. Now, Tony, what are we doing next time? Well, Cam, we're going to be going back to a, a genuine article, Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle. So you're trying to say that five times fast. Uh... The Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger prison escape movie, Escape Plan. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. I've watched it before. I think you have as well. Yep. And I'm looking forward to watching it again, though, with you and and kind of getting into it a little bit. Uh, I will make you a promise for this one too. I will watch Escape Plan 2 in advance. So that uh, maybe I can bring a little bit of commentary about these escape plan sequels that have been dropping mysteriously straight to video. <laughs> That's a bold promise, Cam. I, I might take you up on that. I can't promise I'll watch Escape Plan 2 for that episode. But, but, but you'll watch 3. Uh, maybe I'll watch 3. You watch 2, I'll watch 3. <laughs> that might be actually kind of fun. <laughs> well, Don't hold us to this. <laughs> yeah. One of the other things we might do uh, is we've got a lot of kind of side non-movie ideas that we've been batting around. We've done some of them. They've been successful. Uh, the We did a couple collaborator episodes. We recently did the Sylvester Stallone uh, Schwarzenegger competition episode. And I think those went pretty well. Uh, we're going to try something <laughs> a little bit different. It may or may not be a good idea on a podcast. Uh, sure. You know, on a purely audio medium. But we're going to take a look at the iconic movie posters that Schwarzenegger movies have released over the years and kind of go through them, maybe give them a bit of a ranking. Uh, we'll have a little YouTube video or collection or something like that so that our listeners can go ahead and actually take a look at them before. So fingers crossed. I, th I hope it's going to work here. Um, if not, well, at least we'll have some fun doing it. So definitely check your feeds. I think what we're going to do, though, is release that one. Maybe not as uh, an official episode. Maybe we'll release it as a bonus episode or something like that. Um, but anyways, keep an eye on your feeds, and if that's something that interests you, uh, give it a listen as well. For sure. Okay, you can of course find us on Twitter, at ArnieGeddonPod, or email us at ArnieGeddonPod at gmail.com. We'd love it if you'd leave any reviews for us with any place you get podcasts. That helps us, you know, get a boost in downloads just by getting more awareness out there of the Arnie Geddon name. It lifts us up higher in the iTunes store rankings. So, again, if you appreciate the podcast, do that, and uh, we'd really appreciate it. So, you can, of course, also find Tony where? You can find me, Tony like the name, G like the letter, at arniegeddon.com. You can also go direct to our website if you are so inclined, www.arniegeddon.com. 
You can find me on Twitter at Cam V is in very bad Barbara Walters accent in this movie, Smith. Okay, so we'll be back with Escape Plan. Yeah.